So it is really good to be with all of you again. Nancy and I love it when we come back over here. It's particularly good to be here this morning because we've been around long enough to know that it's really hard for churches to kind of recalibrate and change. But... um and, and really lay hold of, of things and, and go for them. And so um, it's so great to see the fruit of that this morning. I mean, it really is to see these baptisms and all that. So while you're turning to Luke chapter 19, which is where we're going to um, uh, explore a little bit this morning of, of a parable that Jesus told. Luke 19 and verse 11, a parable Jesus told. Well, seems like everybody has their own explanation or description of what a parable is, but I really like uh, the, the description that Warren Wearsby gives, and it's this. He says that a parable is a mirror that becomes a window. A mirror that becomes a window where first in the parable we see ourselves and we see as a window, we see the truth about God and ourselves. And Jesus used uh, parables to 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 really burn into our hearts about the character of God because we so often get it wrong. Our assumptions and our intuitions about God are so often so low and so poor that they need to be corrected. They need to be truthed. Okay. So, and, and we see this in, in, the, in the parable of the prodigal son, right? We all know that parable about the young man that uh, dissed on his father, publicly humiliated him, took all his wealth, or took his wealth. It, it was just an embarrassment. And the way that he went off, you know, into a foreign country, and he lived riotously, as one of the translations says, and, and uh, ended up in a pig pen and decided to go home. Jesus is telling this parable to people who thought they knew what God was like. And so as, as he was telling this parable, you can see the Pharisees in particular, but pretty much all the Jews sitting there going, okay, okay, this guy's broken the law. He's, he's in, he's in it really deep now. And when he comes home, boy, is he going to get it? But can you imagine their shock when Jesus said the father who was looking down the road, saw him a long way off. And he ran to his son and he hugged him. And he put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Complete restoration. Anxious to receive his son. What an upside down view they had. And oftentimes, Jesus uses parables like this one to expose and correct unworthy low views of God that we have. And Jesus was the master storyteller, right? And he knew well that when one man said much, much later, he said, you tell me the facts and I'll learn them. Tell me the truth and I'll try to believe it. You tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. And so these are truths, what we're going to look at today, about God that Jesus wants in our hearts to live forever and inform us of about our God. So let's look in, in Luke 19, verse 11. This is right after the story of Zacchaeus, as you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago. While they were listening to these things, 
And let me back up and see what Jesus said here. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus outlined his mission there. He says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned... After receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves whom he had been given the money, who had been given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared and said, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not sow, what you, uh, what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Do you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he already has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given But to the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Verse 10, Jesus said, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then the scripture says he continued on. He went on. So what we look at in this parable, we have to interpret in the light of what Jesus was already talking about, which was that his ministry and his mission, why he came into the world, was to seek and save what was lost. Now, this is a very practical parable because, like we said a few minutes ago, Jesus was correcting their unworthy view of God and his coming kingdom. You see, uh, they had their own idea about how this kingdom was going to come because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem within the last week before his crucifixion. And, and he was pretty popular and people were singing Hosanna, saying Hosanna. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they figured that Jesus was just going to stride on into Jerusalem that somehow he was just going to ascend to the throne with everybody's approval and that Jesus would then, you know, vanquish their enemies, the Romans, and then they would all live happily ever after. He just had to just do away with their enemies. But that's not what happened. Because a few days later, his enemies would humiliate him, abuse him, mock him, whip him, and ultimately crucify him. On the cross. 
They are the ones, incidentally, like this parable says, that would cry out, we don't want this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. But he would pray from that cross, not, Father, destroy my enemies, but Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And he would rise from the grave, uh, and, and ascend into heaven to receive his kingship and await the time of his return. But his mission of seeking and saving his enemies continues on through his servants, his followers. Now, this parable is about the return of Jesus. We see that clearly here. But it's also about stewardship. Also about stewardship. And when that's kind of one of those Bible uh, words that you don't hear, you know, uh, Pretty much anywhere else. You don't hear it in rap songs and, you know, pretty much any place else. But stewardship is basically this. It it is when you, you, you receive something, you're entrusted with something from its owner, and, and you use that thing to advance the interests of the owner who gave it to you. So, in other words, a good steward would be one that is faithful. A faithful steward would be one that received what was entrusted and used it to advance the interest of the owner. And an unfaithful steward, which we're going to see both in this parable, uh, would be one that either neglected you know, what was given to him, what was entrusted to him, or maybe one that, that used it for their own selfish promotion or their own means. Now, This is very similar to another parable that we find in Matthew 25. Um, It's the parable of the talents. But there are a couple of noteworthy differences, I think, that will help us to interpret this parable. In the talent parable in Matthew 25, the slaves are given different amounts. They were given amounts depending upon their abilities and their capabilities, different amounts according to their ability. But in this parable, all the slaves are given the same. Ten slaves, ten minas, which was a a medium of exchange. It was money. So in this parable, each slave is given the same amount. In the talent parable, in Matthew 25, at the accounting time when the master comes back, the slaves say, look, master, I have gained. I have gained more talents. I have gained. All of them answer that way to the master in the parable in Luke 25. But, now remember, I have gained. But in this parable, it says, Master, your mina has gained. Your mina has gained more. There are more differences than that, but that's the ones that we're going to focus on a little bit today. And we'd have to ask ourselves this question. What is the one thing that all Christians at all times have in common? And they have in the same measure. I mean, we do differ in gifts and abilities and capacities, but one thing that we have that is the same with every Christian, one thing that we have in common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? Well, it's the good news that in love, and we heard this testified to here, right, multiple times uh, this morning already. Uh, The gospel is good news that Jesus died for sinners to pay 
their debt and satisfy God's wrath. The gospel says that Jesus rose again from the grave as a victor over death and the grave and hell. And he's coming again. And the really good news that we heard again here this morning is that all that Jesus has done can be received by any and all who will turn from their sins and trust him as Savior and Lord. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That is is the good news by which every Christian is saved and without which no one is saved. In fact, that gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And to make no mistake, when Jesus was departing, he told his disciples to do business with that gospel. Remember Matthew 28? Go make disciples of the nations. Well, the way that this nations are brought into discipleship, every individual, every nation is through the gospel is believing and trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord. And then again in Acts 1.8, he told his disciples, who, by the way, were still looking for the kingdom, saying, Lord, Lord, is the kingdom going to come now? They still didn't get it. He said, you will be my witnesses. And up to what? <laughs> of his death for their sins? Of his burial? Of his resurrection? And the offer of free grace and free salvation? That's what they were to witness to. You know, Paul, the Apostle called the gospel a treasure, a deposit that we have in earthen vessels. Now, the bulk of this parable, or actually I should say the bulk of the parable was about each slave's response to the command of their master, particularly the third worthless slave. But notice, please notice that the slaves were commanded to go do business with the master's enemies. There's three people. I mean, besides the master and this, there's the faithful slave. There's the faithless slaves and the citizens who hated the master. And they were sent by this master to do business. His business. His seeking and saving business. They were sent to do. Citizens hated him. Citizens rebelled against his reign. And, you know, if you're having a little trouble seeing yourself in this parable, this might help you. You might be saying to yourself, you know, I'm I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I'm certainly not an enemy. But notice in this parable, the enemies of the master are simply those who refused his reign. We will not have this man to rule over us. You may say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I don't really refuse God's reign. Well, what about his law? What about his first commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Have you broken that? Have you broken his law? There's a law that says that we should not bear false witness. Have you lied? There's a law that says that we shouldn't steal. Have you stolen? 
Those are specific commandments from God and and His reign. And to break them and to continue breaking them is to defy His rule. And if you have defied His rule, you are His enemy. And as an enemy, you're under His condemnation. But, but the Master sent His slaves out among His enemies to do gospel business of seeking and saving with his treasure. Now, we've talked about Amina. Amina was actually, they didn't have common coinage the way we do as much. It was just a weight. So if it helps, Amina was 50 shekels. I'm sure that will really bless you all. Uh, it was 50 shekels, and but 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 the but the thing that we need to notice about there, this is that there were no like we have a mint in Denver, and we have one I think in Philadelphia and all that, and they mint all these common coins. Well, they didn't do that in those days. There were local mints, and oftentimes on the coin there would be the image or something that pointed to the local ruler. So in all likelihood, it's at least possible, if not probable, that the minas that these guys were sent out with bore the image of their ruler. And that trading with those would certainly bring persecution because he was hated. There's been really nothing said about the persecution of the slaves in here, but it is certainly implied. And Paul reminds us, though, as this parable does, that our momentary light affliction, momentary light affliction, is gaining for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This parable also reveals that our obedience and or disobedience begins with our view of God. That's why this parable that explained the nature and the character of a loving, forgiving, seeking, saving God is so important. Because our obedience or disobedience begins with our view of God. The slaves had different views of God. The first two servants, however they viewed God or their master, must have been right because it resulted in faithful obedience. They were faithful. And Jesus said... That obedience is the proof of faith, genuine faith, and love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. As a matter of fact, Jesus uh, pointing out the disconnect between sometimes what we say we believe and really what we do believe. He asked the disciples this. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? What about the third slave? He was afraid, it says, suspicious of his master. He says, I knew you to be an exacting man. The word there is, is in the original language is osteros. It's the word that we get austere from, demanding, you know, um, severe. And he erroneously thought that his master was selfish, really with no concern for the slaves, or for that matter, for his enemies, he assumed that his master was a taker. You reap where you didn't sow, and you pick up where you didn't lay down. That was his view of his master. 
God was a, t- that he believed his master was a taker. And, and, and unbelievers, and oftentimes as Christians, we assume that God wants something from us. That God is a taker. And that's the biggest lie in the world. And if there's anything else that we don't get out of this parable, we need to understand that our God is a giver. The, the, the favorite verse that we kind of lead with, right, is, For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave. God is a giver. God wants to give. He wants to give eternal life. That's why He sent His Son to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why in this parable He gave the, the servants to mean that that's why He has given us the gospel. And we need to have that view of God. The way that He's revealed it in His Word, not the way that we intuit it or the way that we assume it. Because we end up with very distorted views of God. Um, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. Well, not only did the third slave mistrust his master, he also misunderstood the power of what his master had given him to do business with, the mina. The other two servants realized that it was the master's mina that gained. Look, master, your your mina has gained, right? They understood that it wasn't their business skills. It wasn't the fact that they were operating in a friendly environment. It was the fact that there was so much power in what the master had given them. The third slave put his mina in a handkerchief. And I see two possible reasons for this. You might see more. The first is preservation. You know, he's respectful of the mina. He didn't just throw it in a drawer and walk off. He wrapped it in a handkerchief. Very respectful. But it was given to him not to preserve, but to propagate. It was given to him not to save, but to spread, to invest. And so it is with many of us. We carefully guard what we believe about the gospel. We respect the gospel, and that is important. But sometimes we shrink wrap it in our hearts and save it rather than spread it. The second possibility of him putting it, as I see it, in the handkerchief is concealment of the master's image to avoid persecution and shame. You know, you realize that the gospel we've been entrusted with is viewed by the world and regarded by the world that Jesus that we serve is a milquetoast loser. But in fact, we know that his death satisfied the wrath of God for anyone and everyone who will repent of their sins and believe. Are you ashamed of that gospel? That third slave might have wrapped it in a handkerchief just because he didn't want people to see the image of the hated master. Well, the faithful servants gained both the minas and were granted rulership over cities. You understand that? They were granted rulership 
one over ten cities and one over five. It was a completely disproportionate reward. God, says Hebrews, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That's why we need to have the right view of God. So that we'll want to seek Him. Because if we don't believe that He's a rewarder, if we do believe that He's Osteros, we won't want to seek Him. Notice here too that God rewards the master rewarded the slaves for what he gave them. <laughs> I mean, that's great, right? He gave them the mina, and then he rewarded them for what the mina could do, just with their faithfulness. And and also, we need to remember too that 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 what what the master said. He says, "Hey, you know, you did a great job. You really knocked it out of the park with the mina." No, he said, "You're faithful in a little thing. You're faithful in a little thing." We like to talk about or think about faith that moves mountains. Jesus talked about that. But he also said that it begins with mustard seed size faith. God delights in using weak little things to make his power and glory known. That's our God. And it's interesting, too, because in this parable here, there's no, the master makes no promise of reward. But by contrast, we have promise after promise from Jesus of reward for faithfulness. In Matthew 5, he says, if you're persecuted for my name's sake, rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. In Matthew 6, Jesus said again, if your giving is done in secret, your Father in heaven will reward you. In Matthew 6, 6 again, prayer, God's, the, the, the promise is that that prayer will be rewarded. In Mark 9, even a cup of cold water. Jesus said, none of it's escaping God's attention. You won't lose your reward. God is looking for excuses to reward faithfulness. But faithless slave lost even the meaning he had. It was given to the slave who was faithful because it's a basic principle of Christian life that wasted opportunity means loss of reward. If we don't use the deposit that's been entrusted to us and that God gives us under his direction, why should we even have them? Jesus is still seeking and saving through those who belong to him. Us servants running around there with the mina of the gospel. So it is an opportune time. But this time of opportunity will come to an end when he returns not as a suffering savior, but as a conquering king. And remember, everyone... Faithful slaves, the faithless slave, and the citizens who hated him. Everyone is summoned to appear before him. All of them. That's all of us. Everybody in this room is somewhere represented in this parable. Everybody in this city. 
everybody in the state and indeed the whole world, will appear before God. Jesus has taken all the guesswork out of what to expect. Jesus has taken what, whatever our wrong ideas were about what this is going to look like in the end and told us exactly what to expect. For believers, there will be an accounting for what we've done with the Master's Mina. For the faithful, extravagant reward. Over the top. For the faithless, rebuke and loss. And for those who refuse the gospel, who refuse his sacrifice, who choose to remain enemies, swift destruction. You know, the time of Jesus' return as king, as a conquering king, is not really addressed in here, but Jesus did address it. And he didn't say when it would be, he said what it would be like when he comes back. And he said it would be like the days of Noah. He says where the people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, blissfully going along, and he would come. You know, Noah, since Jesus referenced that, spent, I don't know, maybe seven, eight decades building the ark. And there it was, as it was being constructed. You know, and as it began to take shape, the ramp was down and the door was open. And people walked by for generations. That was ark. says he was a preacher of righteousness. And they walked by. Day after day, the door was always open until it wasn't. And when Jesus said that's going to be what characterizes his return, it was too late by the time they recognized it. So this parable is a mirror. How do you see yourself? Are you doing the master's business with the gospel of Jesus? Are you preserving it or concealing it? And if you're like me, answering these questions reveals what we truly believe about our master and his gospel. Are you obediently sharing verbally, knowing that the reward is extravagant? What about your lifestyle? Do the people at work or school or the gym or wherever you hang out see a life that can only be explained by the gospel business you're committed to? What about your church? Are you engaged? Are you doing business, the gospel business of building up your brothers and sisters in the gospel? Or are you mostly a church consumer? Dear ones, the the take-home from this parable is simple. Learn from the servants. Learn from the servants. Learn from the enemies. 
Extravagant reward awaits faithfulness with the gospel. Rebuke and loss awaits faithlessness. And there's destruction for those who refuse the reign of the king. Now is the opportune time for all of the master servants to become more faithful by believing the truth about God, about what our Bible says, about how loving and gracious and eager to reward our master is and the power of his gospel. Now is the opportune time, too, for the enemies of the king to bow the knee and receive his generous mercy now instead of his certain wrath later. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, in stories, Lord, that you told, Father, there were such crucial things. And we have to confess, Lord, that our, our, our thoughts, Lord, about the God that we serve are so inadequate, so low, Lord, and they put us in a bad spot. Father, so we, we just pray, Father, that this story that Jesus told would live in our hearts, that our view of our Master as an extravagant rewarder, as one who, who sends his servants out amongst his enemies, that they might be saved and found. What a great God. We just give you praise today for who you are and what you're doing, and we thank you for it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.